ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Quinn Jasper, and you're listening to A Big Country. It's great to have your company. This week, we're heading to the hot and dusty cattle yards of outback Queensland, where the next generation of rural workers are learning the ropes. They're high school students taking part in a training program aimed at landing them a job in agriculture. We'll hear about a virtual farmer's market that's helping Tasmanian producers get their local seasonal food to customers, and we'll visit a family fruit orchard that's been around since the 1860s. The current growers are modernising operations and still getting great enjoyment from growing and picking cherries, peaches, plums, nectarines, apples and pears. I do enjoy the, uh, the work that we do, growing fruit and harvesting and lots of things. It's, um, it's always a reward yeah, for effort yeah, to, to bring the, the produce in at the end of the day. And it doesn't matter what it is, what form of agriculture is involved. Yeah. Yeah, there's always that enjoyment of the harvest at the end of the day. If people enjoy what we grow, yeah, that's satisfaction as well. A satisfying job growing and harvesting fruit will meet two generations of that family operation and hear how it's changed over time. That's coming up. First today, we're heading to the Hawkesbury River in New South Wales, where locals rely on the riverboat postman to deliver mail to their isolated properties. It's the last service of its kind in Australia, but it isn't showing signs of slowing down anytime soon. Kira Proust has this story. Winding your way along the famous Hawkesbury River, the busyness of Sydney seems a million miles away. The bushland along the water's edge is dense, and most of the people living here don't have any road access. But it's the untapped beauty that the locals love. It's a great place to live. People definitely make it. And also, it's just the the natural beauty of the place. The majority of the land around here is either National Park or Nature Reserve. It is like a small country town of 1,200 people. So 600 or so on the water, 600 or so on Brooklyn. Where we are now in in Brooklyn Channel, this is sort of the interface for the residents on the river to come over to Brooklyn. So, you know, you've got the local pub in Brooklyn where you find a lot of the locals on the water would go. You've also got the bowling club on Danga Island, which people go to. You've also got the workers' club up at Mooney Mooney. People go to that as well. So there's lots of places to socialise. Justin Panagi runs the local postal delivery service alongside his brother and wife. It's the last service of its kind in Australia, delivering mail to locals up and down the river every weekday all year round. Deliver anything from a postcard to a box of wine and everything in between, up to about 450 articles of mail each day, which is about normal. Locals say the postal service is the real lifeblood of the river, with many of them often hitching a free ride on the boat. My name's Margie Waite. We rely very heavily on the mail service. and It's very, very much changing because it's all more or less going to parcels now. There's not a lot of um, letters kind of mail. But um, the Riverboat Postman has a slight tax on, on they, they say, on their, if you order a dozen bottles of wine, then, then they take one bottle for tax, tax purposes. <laughs> the original Riverboat Postman started operating back in 1910. It was taken over by the Panagis in 2012 after the previous business owners went into liquidation. It now doubles as a tourist attraction, taking visitors out on the water during the daily mail run. Now, a lot of these places upriver here originally were farms, and over the years they were subdivided. Danga Island resident Beth Rayner is one of the staff that helps keep the customers happy during the trip. So we collect the mail in Brooklyn and we deliver it to a couple of settlements up the river. 
and it's great. It means that we have the same postal service as everywhere else. We still get our deliveries. It does take a couple of days longer, but nothing crazy for you know living so far out of the way and having water access only is and still being able to get mail is great. So when there's no locals, we have to run it up to their local post stop boxes and it's usually not too far, just up the wharf. Booze and guitars seem to be the most popular parcel items and the local gossip also helps keep people entertained. There's always some scandal going along. And look, let's just face it, everyone loves a bit of scandal as long as they're not a part of it. You know, there's always something going on in the river. There is never a dull moment on the Hawkesbury. The funny thing is people say on the boat, oh, you must get really bored up river. I have never been bored up river here, ever. It's very lively and very interactive. A lot, a lot of businesses on the river, very vibrant, and I think it's a, an untapped gold mine, and that's how we want it to stay. <laughs> While the riverboat postman continues to service those along the Hawkesbury River, Australia Post and other contractors across the country are now gearing up for a busy Christmas period ahead. Helen Goodyear from Australia Post's New South Wales and Queensland division says they're expecting a busier delivery season than last year. We're looking uh, in really good shape. You know, this is something that we plan for. It's like our grand final. So we've been getting plenty of match fitness and ready to, uh, you know, hopefully uh, deliver on a better peak than last year. Uh, Last year we delivered 52 million parcels. We're expecting another big peak season this year. It's early in the morning and a small van is just pulling up to a bakery in the middle of Launceston. It's not unloading flour, but crates of produce from farms across the state's north. Things like beef, pork and lamb wrapped beautifully in brown paper. There's eggs, leafy greens, berries and cheese. Product for Jennifer Phillips, uh, microgreens and beetroot. And a small team of producers are repacking the goods into another set of crates and then they're loaded back into the van. These are destined for collection hubs in the Midlands and Hobart. Produce from the south then returns up the highway to customers across the northern half of the island. It's an online farmer's market and it's owned and operated by small producers in Tasmania since 2020. So the pandemic had hit and all of a sudden, you know, I guess our farmers were not unlike lots of other businesses in Australia. It was scrambling to find ways to continue to service their market and sell their products. So they took that kind of um, traditional farmer's market concept and, and put it online. I'm Shez Orchard. I'm the producer liaison for the Tasmanian Produce Collective. So that's now what we still have, which is an online um, farmer's market platform where you can kind of select from a range of produce and it gets delivered um, either to your door or to a collection point close to you. In the beginning, there was only one regional hub. It was in the north um, and then it really took off. You know, people were shopping for everything online during COVID. So sales boomed and we moved to have three hubs, one in the northwest, one in Launceston and one in Hobart in the south. And now we service 14 local collection points across that route um, up and down the state. How have you maintained and grown the number of suppliers in this business model when they're running their own farms, they might be selling at farmers markets? There are a lot of balls to juggle here. Yeah, totally. I think it was mostly because our founding members had been 
producers for a time and recognize that, you know, in, in building this organization, that the model solved some of the other common challenges for producers, which are that you can't always get into a farmer's market because, you know, there might be many other producers selling a similar product line um, or that, you, you know, it's really hard for you. you might have a young family in weekends tied up in farmer's markets and traveling across the state might be difficult and challenging. So we kind of position ourselves, you know, as an alternative, you know, for people who can't get to a farmer's market, but we're, you know, we don't really see it as necessarily direct competition, more just that we're servicing a different part of the community and providing another avenue to access local food. We also see our model works really well for new producers and the average age of a farmer in Australia at the moment is 65. So we as a community of people really need to be focusing on ways to build pathways to market for new and aspiring folks. And so TPC is good because you, you know, you can manage your inventory, you can sell whatever you have, you don't need to have, you know, a really high level of consistency of supply. And so it's also worked for those types of producers. Yes, we have had kind of, you know, like people drop off, but we seem to be picking up new producers at, at a similar pace. I think, um, you know, there's lots of people who are coming to Tassie um, and trying farming and have a product now that they're ready to take to market. And it's great that they're finding us as an option to, as a way to get that in front of consumers. And that's been the case for Kate Marshall and Rupert Standing. The pair run a market garden and poultry operation at Karula in the state's north. For us, starting small, it was a big dive for us to, to get into it to start with. We, we weren't, weren't sure whether we had enough product to supply and just it's just gone boom for us. So I guess uh, we, we put on the, uh, the amount of product that we have for sale and generally most of it sells, so it's, it's worked really well for us. How important is the Produce Collective to your business in terms of a revenue stream? We're not the, we're not the sort of market garden who grows rows and rows of carrots that we can supply to restaurants or have enough to bulk out a, a market garden store. We, we like having the variety and we like doing just uh, small amounts because we're human scale um, you know, human-powered farm, so... It's just the two of you. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So so we only um, plant small amounts. So the TPC is fantastic for that because we can say, well, we've got 10 bunches of turnips or two bunches of turnips. It doesn't matter. We can um, stimulate our, our stock levels on the online system um, and, and sell just what we've got. We don't have to meet demands or, or meet quantity levels. So for a farm that's starting out and, and growing... It's the absolute perfect platform. We don't have to worry about all the admin side of things and the collecting money. All we do is, is grow the beautiful product and hand it to the customer. We don't have to deal with any of that. So that's been fantastic for us. My name's Kat Ferrero and I'm from Tamar Valley Pastured Eggs in Glengarry on the West Tamar. And we've been there for about six years and we have uh, about 700 chooks producing eggs for us. Tell me about your foray into the Taz Produce Collective. When did you start? Yeah, sure. So we started back in the beginning um, in 2020 uh, and it mainly came about because we sort of knew some of the other producers who were talking about it um, and COVID was obviously relatively new and having a big impact on um, farmers markets and the ways that we were able to get our produce to consumers so we were sort of having some discussions about that um, and also about how we could gain back more control so the idea of the cooperative sort of came about and that's how we got involved. We are now happy with the amount of chooks that we've got and the eggs that we're selling. It's sort of 
enough that we can manage it. So there's myself, my partner Duncan and my mum Meredith. So between the three of us, we can manage the work and it's, you know, our sales are enough that we can support ourselves, which is important. And so we're pretty happy with our levels, but we are sort of thinking about longer term, are there other things that we want to get into or that sort of thing because eggs can be quite labour intensive. You've got to collect them every day. So it can be hard to get any time away from the farm. So that's obviously something that is important. I think most small producers will tell you that even when you've only got a small number of animals, the work can be really intense, but it's worth it. You know, we love what we do and we um, really love living in Tasmania. It's such a great place to raise a family. So we're really lucky. Egg farmer Kat Ferrero ending that story from Larissa Smith about the Tasmanian Produce Collective. And before that, Kira Proust took us for a trip along the Hawkesbury River on Australia's last riverboat postal service. I'm Clint Jasper with you for A Big Country. Still to come, we'll meet the high school kids getting out of the classroom and into the cattle yards for practical lessons in farming. And we'll visit Green Hill Orchards in the New England region of New South Wales. Established in 1865, the orchard is still owned and operated by the Yeomans family. Lara Webster stopped by the packing shed to take a walk down memory lane with grower Warren Yeomans. There's always a little rock there somewhere to catch the bottom. If the walls of Warren's packing shed could speak, they'd have plenty to say. They've seen generations come and go. They've watched little boys grow up to be men, little girls grow up to be women. And they've seen more fruit than you or I would ever be able to count. So we're just uh, standing in the entrance to the um, packing shed at the moment. Um, It runs in front of the cool rooms and also the pack all the packing facility so all the fruit comes in here and goes out here and there's, I suppose it's the um, what do you call it the bottleneck of the operation because the orchard is um, all spread out across mm-hmm. the property and uh, so the fruit has to be harvested and gent- harvested by hand but it comes in uh, in containers could be stacked on pallets or whatever and so there's a lot of you know the sorting process happens mm-hmm. here or if it's apples and pears they go into storage and it gets sorted out gradually through the season. But with cherries and stone fruit, it's a pick and sell because they have a short shelf life. Mm. Uh, So it's a quick turnaround. So there's lots of comings and goings uh, through this part of the place. I suppose you could say this shed's almost like the heartbeat of the operation, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Yeah, it probably needs a transplant at times. Ah. (laughs) And while we're looking around us, this is the original part of the shed we're in, isn't it? We've even got the some of the original flooring still here. We've got some of the original beams above us. Yeah, no, it's, um, I don't even know how old it is, but it, it would be fairly old and um, yeah, well used. And if it could speak, it'd be interesting to know some of the things that's happened in the past. But <laughs> <laughs> well, you did grow up here. What are some of your memories? Um, my memories, well, well, there's certainly um, changed. Like years ago, they used to even sort cherries by hand. Like you just pick them up and turn them over your hand and put them in the box and... Um, and then my dad decided that it had to be a better way and he built a, a cherry, just a conveyor belt really, but just to sort cherries on and you know, put some lighting out of the top and uh, things like that. But um, yeah, the fruit sorting has changed over the years as well. And then with the advent of um, forklifts and you know, bulk handling and stuff like that, because uh, as a kid, we used to pick 
well, I say with apples, we used to put them into wooden boxes and so sort of stacked in the orchard, stacked on the trailer, stacked at the front of the shed, stacked in the cool room. Because mm. now with a forklift, you just lift up a bin and transport straight in. So, yeah, bulk handling's made a big difference. But, yeah, it's, it's all about you know, trying to achieve those levels of efficiency, you know, which is from the, how big the tree is to how far it is from the shed to how much movement we do around the shed and lots of different things here. There is such a rich, rich history here. I mean, your family have been here since the 1800s. What do you think has been behind you surviving so long, do you think? Uh, well, I'm, I'm probably one for um, sticking at something and persisting. I think it, it's just... Um, I do enjoy the, uh, the work that we do, growing fruit and harvesting and lots of things. It's, um, it's always a reward you know, for effort you know, to, to bring the, the produce in at the end of the day. And it doesn't matter what it is, what form agriculture is involved. You know, you know, there's always that enjoyment of the harvest at the end of the day. Um, but for me, it's fruit and uh, various types of fruit. If people enjoy what we grow, uh, that's satisfaction as well. The orchard may have been here since the 1800s, but its future's still looking bright. And Warren's second eldest child, Tom, is part of the future and its direction. Yeah, so that with the advent of YouTube videos and that sort of thing, information travels really fast. So now I get to follow some of the cutting edge orchards mm -hmm. you know, around the world, particularly North America. There's mm -hmm. a lot of innovation and people are making breakthroughs all the time in, in how to best manage the nutrition to reduce reliance on chemicals so yeah a lot of that is foliar applications for us in our situation in the orchards. So tell me about the work you've been doing in that space and and how you're progressing. In our space one of the big ones has actually been incorporating things from the ocean so um, fish extract, uh, seaweed extract so be that either composted kelp or alkaline extract kelp that's been a, a game changer for us in improving the resiliency to any kind of stress events like after a hailstorm touch wood we won't have a big hailstorm this season but <laughs> uh, so after a hailstorm or after a really dry spell or even just you know getting kick-started at the start of the season it's very stressful on the plants what are some of your future projects and and the direction you'd like to see part of the farm take yeah, so we have actually grafted a few years ago a bunch of old English cider varieties and heritage varieties. And so uh, looking to the future, there's going to be some hopefully very interesting juices coming out with uh, varieties you've probably never heard of, or maybe your grandparents have, would have heard of them, as well as some of those sort of traditional English style of ciders as that orchard matures. Sounds like Green Hill Orchards still has a very exciting future ahead. We hope so. Certainly, yeah. There, there's a lot of lot of different things that we're working on, and, and yeah, definitely looking to the future. It's a hot and dusty day in outback Queensland, and high school student Georgia Ward is swapping the classroom for cattle yards. For one, you don't have to be at a desk all day. You can be outside doing, especially if you enjoy doing outdoor stuff like me. Um, so that's the best part, I reckon. It's a different experience and it's good for people who want to get into the industry, especially if they don't come from like a farming family like I do. Hello, I'm Madeline McCosker. Georgia is part of a small cohort of Year 10, 11 and 12 students from Longreach State High School that are taking part in a certified rural operations class. 
It's a nationally accredited school-based training program giving high school students a taste of careers in the agricultural industry. Once a week, they travel to nearby properties to learn the ropes from graziers, agents and industry professionals. Teachers Courtney Horan and Tom Higgins started offering the program after they noticed a lack of pathways for young people into agriculture. Yeah, the kids love it, especially days like today when we're mustering, we're in the yards, they're hands-on, they're getting dirty. They don't love the theory as much as the practical, but we love the theory because we know ultimately education is key to the ag industry succeeding for the future and this generation coming through. And they're not just going with that eagerness and keenness to work and that physical work side to it, but they're going in with the foundational knowledge of the entire industry. Australia's agriculture industry is worth around $80 billion in 2023. But a skilled worker shortage in recent years has left the industry understaffed. Courtney says training and education are an obvious solution to ensuring the future of one of the country's biggest industries. Like I said, kids are getting exposure to all sorts of enterprises. Some graziers are focusing on genetics of their herds, others are fattening livestock, others are improving their pastures. So they're seeing that there's not one way to run a property or be within the ag industry. They've been visiting the local butcher, they've had livestock agents come and talk to them. So they're getting the whole picture of the industry for Australia. Hands-on learning is great for any student that would like to be more hands-on with their learning styles, but also the fact that our program is concentrating not just on kids going out to a paddock, mustering the cattle into the yards and putting them on the truck, but they're getting exposure, the knowledge and skills to what the biosecurity requirements are, who the government bodies are involved in the industry, what their workplace health and safety responsibilities and rights are, and things to do with sustainability with the industry and what the future looks like for agriculture in Australia. Fellow teacher Tom Higgins says getting the kids out of the classroom was a big factor in the program's success. It's phenomenal to give kids that uh, chance to work practically rather than just be locked up in a classroom. I can't emphasise enough how great the practical element of all of this has been to give this chance to kids who are not necessarily, you know, reading and writing learners. They're more that kinesthetic learner the chance to actually get out and build and work on these skills. Longreach Grazier Ann Webber works as a teacher aide on the course and often has the students visit her property to help out with cattle work. Today, they're mustering and processing cattle for live export. It gives kids an insight into what really happens. Kids need to see that there are, you know, like it's, there are endless opportunities and wide open spaces and, and a million jobs that you could fill in. Anne has worked on the land her whole life and knows firsthand the importance of attracting and retaining staff. She says the industry could be doing more to create opportunities for young people. I think it's important. I mean, I know what it's like because I've done that. And with the colleges closing down, I think that's where a lot of the kids, they got their foot in the door because they, they got some experience. And with those colleges closed down, I think, well, then it's up to us. If we want the people in our industry, then we have to give back. Lead Ag is another rural program that takes students between the age of 15 and 17 across central and western Queensland in order to gain practical experience on farm and within the industry. I'm Meg Bassingthwaite and I'm the Agriculture Workforce Officer for Turup, which is based in Emerald, and I work in Longreach. So my role is based around attracting, training, retaining workforce in the agricultural industry. This year, Meg says there was a large increase in interest for the program, which started in 2022. It was 
amazingly oversubscribed. So in um, 2023, there are 135 applicants and we were only able to give 12 positions. She says it's a good opportunity for students to get a holistic view of the different careers in agriculture. Coming out and seeing the sheer scale of some of the places we've visited and understanding all of the different facets that are there um, has been really eye-opening to a lot of them. And, and they might have thought they wanted to work with cattle or those or some kind of livestock and they've actually realised that they're super interested in ag tech um, or something like that. So it's been interesting to see how... Having that exposure has really helped those kids form their ideas with all that information available. I think giving people who may or may not have an understanding of the ag industry access to networks in different areas of the ag industry really sets them up or enables them to be more likely to enter the industry, which obviously both supports the workforce and also the employers. Meg Bassingwaith, an agricultural workforce officer based in Emerald in Queensland, ending that report from Madeleine McCosker. Before that, Lara Webster took us for a step back in time, visiting the Yeomans family's more than century-old orchard in northern New South Wales. That's the show for today. Thanks for listening and bye for now. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.